The Business on RT Radio 1 with AIB. We know that your focus is on your business. That's why ours is on supporting you. Welcome to the show. Today we have a Christmas special full of music and memories. In a year when we've lost some of our greatest musicians, we've decided to do a music business show in the company of Mick Flannery and members of his family. Flannery, his aunt Yvonne Daly and his brothers Brian, Dave and Eamon. Mick, I was at one of your gigs in Derry recently and I saw these guys at the back of the room selling merch, merchandise and then they came on stage to sing with you and it was incredible how similar you all sounded uh, because your brothers, and we're going to hear them sing in a, in a little while as well, what's it like going on the road with the brothers? That's good. It's uh, they keep me in check for sure. My modesty is always existent, but like it has to be, it has to be kept way down when the lads are around. So uh, get, you get you get dragged down at every opportunity, do you? Well, there's there's lots of sarcasm, cynicism. I'm used to it. Like it's uh, yeah, it's it's that massive Mick Flannery ego, is it? That has to be punctured, is it? Yeah, it's a full time job. <laughs> now the important stuff: who does the driving and who does the navigating in the van? Eamon and myself share the driving, but really Eamon was the chief suffering because he drove the van to Europe and back from Europe on his own. We arrived like divas on planes. <laughs> he did the and left work. And left like divas on planes as well. Well, was that true? Did you draw the short straw, Eamon? I, I accidentally volunteered, I think. <laughs> it was all done. Well, I noticed when you were setting up musically there a wee while ago, Mick, you did everything and the lads sat down. They, they weren't exactly breaking into a sweat. They wait until the very end to ask if he needed some help. And he said, yeah, yeah. I haven't gotten to the stage of training Eamon to do anything with regards to plugging in DIs or anything yet because he's already suffered enough so far. The delicate, 
process. <laughs> but uh, do you ever have any rows? They're long drives, you're touring around the country and going abroad. Uh, I don't think we had any row this time. Uh, well, I think I, I have to stop you from killing people every once in a while. Is that right, Eamon? <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> what about you, Dave? You're staying quiet in all of this. Are, are there any rows? Not at all, no. We all get on very well. That's good crack. Everyone in the van is sound, so... Yvonne, you sing with them. Do you end? You don't end up yeah, stuck in the van as well, do you? I would put myself through going with them in the van. <laughs> You'd be scarred for life, I'm would you? I'm the diva. I'll, I'll fly. <laughs> and what's it like as their aunt when you're singing together or if you're touring with Mick? And is, do, you, do you have to sort of play the aunt role every now and again? to sort Absolutely of not. I was never considered an aunt, I don't think. I'd say not anyway. No. We're too close in age. We're too close, yeah. So it was more more sisterly than, than aunt. Yeah, I get the sister abuse all right sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So what was the... Makes the, you feel special. <laughs> what was the Flannery household like growing up then, Mick? I mean, firstly, was there a lot of music in the house? Our mother played guitar and sang and our mother's brothers, all her brothers and sisters had lovely voices and, and their father as well. So there was a lot of music in that family, uh, not so much in our, on our father's side, but in Killarney, where our mother's family was from, there was lots of get-togethers and lots of pass the guitar around or just kind of do your, do your bit in the sing-song type. And your granddad, he was into singing as well on that side, was he? He was. He didn't come to the pub, but uh, I, just, I remember him in the car when we were driving around, he'd sing. He, he used to love singing Paul Robeson songs or... Old Man River, yeah, Castle exactly. of Dromore. I don't know Castle of Dromore. Yeah, it was. I think it was a B-side. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I, I might have stumbled across some time ago. Old Man River. The, uh, how are you going to get your cornmeal made in the green leaf shade? Yeah, he had this really big, powerful voice. Paul he did. Yeah. Our, our grandfather kind of had the same type of tone to his voice. So, so what about in in your own house then? What 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 kind of music was played? A lot of like what we consider like good storytelling. Songwriters, you know, Leonard Cohen or Joni Mitchell or Jim Croce or Bob Dylan, Tom Waits as well. Bit of sad songs going on there with those guys. Lots of sad songs. Like what I became to know, what I came to know as a song was a kind of a sad story, I suppose, more than. You were hearing it when you were growing up. That's what I thought a song was, yeah. And like I remember when I was singing uh, Jim Croce songs, for example, and I was too young for the subject matter, my uncles would say, Pick something else because you don't know what you're singing about, you know. And you're singing about being broken hearted. Yeah, you? like singing Lover's Cross, like a 12 years old. You know, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> and so, yeah, but that was just the, that was the way, it, that's what the music we were listening to was. And what about you, Dave? What are your recollections of the music in the house? I'd have had the extra stuff Mick would have been listening to when he was a teenager or whatever. There wasn't a bit of scope for some of you listening to different stuff. It yeah, was, well, Mick was following the lead, really, of Mick the was into Nirvana for a while. I was into Metallica, but, it was, but mainly it was like our parents' music we were listening to, like the stuff that's on the LPs. Bit of Shania Twain, no? Knocking around? I think I had a Shania Twain album. Who told you that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a weird guess. I, I, think I, I think I read it somewhere. Oh, God. Yeah, I don't know how that happened, but I did have a Shania Twain album. Yeah, you're obviously trying to completely erase that from... Uh, I'm, I'm owning up to it. From the brand. I don't know what it was for at the time. <laughs> I think I actually do know. <laughs> what, what, about, what about Diane Connor? Wait now, who have you been talking to? <laughs> 
Look, it's called research. Who are you talking to, though? I don't trust you one bit anymore. <laughs> I don't think you did at the start. <laughs> but Nirvana was mentioned there. Was that a kind of a a bit of a change of direction in terms of, you know, opening up a different kind of music to you? It was the first time I kind of wanted to play music because I saw Kurt Cobain on this uh, 2 TV it was at the time. And I thought he was, you know, cool. Like, and I, When I heard the song, The Man Who Sold the World... There was something about its kind of aggressiveness or kind of darkness that I I liked and I wanted to be able to play it. So I started playing the guitar then and soon afterwards tried to kind of write songs like it. Was he all, had he died at that time? He had or already he... passed away. I didn't know who he was. I, I really wasn't kind of up to speed on, on anything, you know, modern culture wise. I remember telling my friends about Kurt Cobain and they said, yeah, we know all about him, but he's dead two years. So you, you, were, you, you were lost in the Shania phase, was it? I was still on the Shania. I was getting through my second Shania album. <laughs> <laughs> and what about starting to, to perform music and play music? When or where did you start? Um, there's a, a man named Ricky Lynch in, in the Cork music scene. Um, he, he played with his sons a lot. And my f- parents would go in to see them play. Like uh, it was a Monday night gig type thing. They'd bring me in when I was fifteen or sixteen, and they heard that I was trying to play guitar and sing, so they they invited me up on stage to. I played two Nirvana songs. What age were you at that stage? I'd say I was fifteen. Were you nervous? Yeah, and I was terrible. Like I I, I was playing the songs wrong. I, I can remember the band trying to play the songs correctly along with me and it was impossible because I had the rhythm all wrong. It was kind of discernible as a song, but not proper, you know. But it didn't put you off, did Well, they taught me a bit. They told me what I was doing wrong. And it's like one of the things that keeps happening to me is like when I'm listening to other people or the guys in the band teach me a lot still about various ignorances I have with to timing and chords and things like that. You're doing your own thing a bit. To a degree, I don't understand what weirdnesses I have. Um, they kind of explain them to me. And what, what about nerves? I mean, if that's there, it, it can be very hard to overcome. They used to be much worse than they are now. How bad? I used to just feel sick and kind of uh, curse myself for having got myself into the situation that I was in. But then after after each kind of getting through it, you have this adrenaline thing that has tidied you over and you've enjoyed it. It was it was a struggle and sometimes you're kind of embarrassed maybe by the things you said where you were trying to be funny and it didn't go off. But after a while you kind of learn to kind of calm down and not take it too seriously. Maybe you're overthinking it. I was definitely overthinking it and overthinking myself and being too precious about how I was being perceived. And Eamon, what do you remember of um, these early days when Mick had the, the nerves but was playing and going out and getting used to playing? I suppose there's a good enough age gap between us, so I don't really remember a lot of him being nervous. But I, would remember, you... I remember being nervous for him at certain big gigs, right? Yeah. Because, you know, you could tell he was a bit shaky. Did you give him a pep talk? No, he's fine, sure. <laughs> he's grown, man. <laughs> and what about selling, selling the CDs at, at, at the gigs and that? You're, you're involved in that. I was selling them from those early gigs. I was a kid selling them. He might throw me 50 quid every now and then. It was great crack. You didn't, uh, didn't have a falling out over how much you were getting paid or anything? No, I was young. I Are had no you? idea what, what labour laws and stuff like that. <laughs> 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 and 
Mick, your first album, it, it, it sort of came about through your mom's connection with music and, and she she was recording music herself. Yes, yeah, she was um, she was doing an album uh, that she named Keepsake with a friend named Pat O'Hearn, a friend of the family's and a musician himself. And I was out to play piano on some of the songs and do some harmony and I was kind of guilty of overtaking the session. In what way? Well... I, I had told Pat that I had some songs of my own that I'd like to record. And then somehow, I, I, I didn't really bully the situation as far as I remember, but it just became, all of a sudden, it was my album recording session and Mom's one had to wait. Your, your had, poor mom had, And them being nice to me. How, how did she take it? Uh, she was just interested in, like, what her young son was up to with creative stuff like that, so... Yvonne uh, Mix Mam Elaine was your sister... What was is that how you re- recollect the uh, the events of that first recording session? No, actually. <laughs> what happened? I th- I thought your uh, evening train came first, but uh, anyway. Well, it did come first, but yeah. her album was booked in first. Okay. It was, and then she finished it afterwards. Okay. <laughs> did Did Elaine Yvonne, Did she chat about Mick singing and what he was doing in music? She did. Well, you see, what, as Mick mentioned, the sessions that we used to have past the guitar, she used to say, try and encourage Mick to sing a song or two when we were all together. And he, he did. He was very good, but very shy, like all the rest of us, I guess. I think that's where it all started, really. And, uh, there's, there's a bit of shyness running in the family, is there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Normal Irish level of... Humility. <laughs> <laughs> and when it came to writing songs, you, you had those songs at the time of that recording. What, what age were you when you started writing your own material? Uh, I started messing around when I was 16. I went to a course called um, Music Management and Sound in Cork, Colosh de Stefan The teachers there were brilliant and they set this project. And that, so I set myself this concept album I didn't finish it within the year. It took me an extra year to kind of finish it, but I had gotten halfway and I was kind of bound to finish it at that stage. Um, and it was a very useful tool to have a story to pin songs to because I didn't really have a lot to say for myself. I was 20 years old and I just, you know, didn't know much about the world at all. So, But you felt that songs were about stories, so you'd start with a story of some kind. Yeah, the story I made up was about two brothers, both kind of different characters, one like stereotypically good and one stereotypically kind of rakish or kind of wild. Some of the the stories that, that feature in your songs, for example, you have one song, The Small Fire, and it talks about guys saying, I, I, I lit the small fire, ma, I don't know who lit the big one. What, there was a family connection or family story behind that. My grandfather, when when he was a young boy, he accidentally set up set off a fire on the farm. So they were messing around with matches. And what went up? A shed? A shed, a shed yeah, a hay shed. The song itself kind of doesn't deal with that story. It's more like what parts of your personality are kind of bad for the world. Um, like your jealousy, your uh, aggression, all these things that kind of live inside of you they feed into a world where like, they become a larger problem. When lots of men get together, there's a lot more aggression. That can lead to what we, what we know as the world as it is. You know? the, sh- the shape of it. Another song you have, Ships in the Night, 
you told a story about how you got the idea behind it. There was when you used to go to a bar and there was a guy there. Yeah, it was like he was this, this lonely fella that I used to sit beside. I actually sat beside him, kind of safe in the knowledge that he wouldn't talk to me. Um, but then, and he didn't. He didn't for a long time. But then, so you just the two you'd sit there and say nothing. Yeah, it was lovely, and uh, he. But after a while, he developed some type of trust for me because I was so quiet. Then one night he got extra drunk and he just started talking about worries of of his life and would he ever meet the right woman, which I thought was a strange worry because he was making no effort, obviously, <laughs> to make, to meet the right woman. And uh, I just like it's just uh, something about him. I don't know what he did for a living or anything, but he kind of had this kind of sailor thing about him. And uh, I went and wrote this kind of song about. Uh, Ships in the Night is the name of the song it's like, But did you bond after that conversation? Did you become best I mates? Actually, I can't remember his name And no, no we didn't bond No, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he forgot talking to me in, at all It was over But I didn't sit beside him again <laughs> he, he ruined the whole thing, did he? Yeah, he ruined our relationship <laughs> Well, earlier um, I mentioned a song that you sang in Derry uh, when I went to a gig uh, called Take It On The Chin and I think you guys are going to uh, play it for us now. We we do have to warn listeners that there's uh, some bad language. So take it on the chin. Take it away, guys. You ready? No. I put 50 fine dollars on this hand. I'm in. I'm in. Not a chance. So only one of you dolls want to dance. Boy, you better have some balls in those pants Give me two cards One card Oh, look at that Try to fill a flush up and bite me in the ass Jeez, you must think Lady Luck is up there hiding in your hat Oh, you're trying to fuck with me Boy, we'll see about that It's a hundred to play now we'll see what you weigh now The pot is getting hotter, boy We'll see if you stay around Money is spent. 
Dave and Eamon doing most of the singing there. A song from Evening Train, Mick's first album. The dream is now to bring that concept album to Broadway. And we're joined by Julie Kelleher, Artistic Director and CEO of the Mermaid Arts Centre, who is also a director of the Evening Train musical. Julie, you've got big ambitions for this musical. We do, big ambitions, big dreams. We're, we're you know, on the road to getting there, um, but we're also conscious that it takes a really long time and that it's a it's an iterative process as you go through uh, the different developments on it. A show as big as this um, and also getting people on board to kind of to back a thing, to, you know, to believe in it now. And I think one of the things that I've learned over this kind of process of the last five, six years working with Mick and working with some of the people around him is, you know, is to do with like taking a risk and kind of backing yourself and those kinds of things, you know. It's a huge financial undertaking, isn't it? To to think about a musical touring or going abroad. And it's, I suppose, the kind of process is iterative, you know, over time with something like this because there's kind of like a constant proof of concept type situation happening where, you know, we, we, we got as far as we got in 2019 and we put it in front of an audience and it was very warmly received, you know, it was hometown crowd, but we knew that there was more things that we needed to do. And so we're about that. And now. where did you get the, the backing to have taken well, it this far? Well, Mick has been backing himself to do that in a lot of ways. You know, the, the Everyman uh, would have put up half the, the money to do that at that time, the full production. But between this and then, Mick really is subsidising like that, this project through his, his own um, other artistic pursuits so he's really it's very entrepreneurial actually what he's doing with this it, it, For you Mick it's it's very much a, a, a live project and it's something you want to drive on with Yeah and it's a it's a challenge it's because it's like it's kind of there are so many people involved in it it's, it's quite different to touring with a small band or a band that you can adjust and it's a, it's a different animal to think about it's it's very exciting because of it's a new genre it's kind of a whole new space of creativity i suppose and it's lovely to see people in their own vocations and kind of doing their different jobs were you worried putting money into it these things can become a money pit <laughs> yes i have confidence at the moment um about where we where we are to, it seems to take a while to kind of get everything aligned from a kind of a personnel point of view and as you said like you know just what was the phrase you used? Creative, like proof of concept. Proof of proof. Yeah, concept. I need to do that. And it, it's like you know, if the, if you're just singing a song, if it's just you and the guitar, right, you can try that out. But as Mick says, with with a piece of theatre, you you need so many more bodies, and, uh, and trying the, to line it all up is at, a challenge. At the end of the day, Julie, um, bringing it to Broadway is is a big deal. Yeah, and we're 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 kind of halfway down the road maybe with it. So we have another developmental workshop week in January happening. We've got some support from the Gate Theatre in Dublin to make that workshop happen, and then the next step is hopefully a full production between in Ireland and in Canada is the hope. We, we're in talks with two venues in both places, and then we hope that, that that's kind of a pit stop to the next bit. And there may, there may be somebody out there, a business person, investor listening who's going to inject some money into it so it might be better than investing in a, a yacht or a horse. But it would be certainly different anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much Julie and thanks to Mick and we will be back after these.